Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome love. to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. David Bakavoy, welcome to the podcast. How are you tonight? I'm well, thank you, Bill. It's great to be on with you. Good, good. Glad for the chance to sit down with you. Just to maybe preface this, and I say this all the time, but the guests that I have on, my listeners are going to be well familiar with, and they're certainly going to be well familiar with you. But for those who do not uh, know who you are, maybe just a little comment from me, and then I'd like to give you a chance to share kind of a short bio on yourself. But uh, David Bakavoy is the author of the book, Authoring the Old Testament, and uh, what a neat book, Dave, uh, but I wondered if you might start us off by just sharing a little bit about yourself. Oh, great. Thank you for the opportunity. I am David Bakavoy. I live in Orem, Utah with my wife, Carolyn, and our four children. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree in history from Brigham Young University, went to Brandeis University, both for my master's and my PhD. My master's in is in ancient Near Eastern and Judaic studies, and the doctorate is in Hebrew Bible in the ancient Near East. I've taught uh, seminary and institute courses for many years for church education and currently teach courses in Bible and in Mormon studies at the University of Utah. Awesome. I just uh, yesterday had a listener to this podcast send me an email and he said, you know, one of the topics you should cover is is what is scripture and, and how did we get the Old and New Testament? And then he finished the email by saying, one of the guests you should probably reach out to is a author by the name of David Bakafoy. And I said, well, I responded back and said, I'm actually interviewing him tomorrow. Uh, and obviously here we are today. David, what what went into this book in the sense of what was your your purpose behind sitting down and writing it? What kind of motivated you to do that? And what kind of an audience are you trying to reach? So the background on the book then, really I should start with uh, my love for biblical Hebrew and ancient Near Eastern studies. I came home from my mission, like a lot of returned missionaries, fascinated with Mormon scripture, Mormon history, took an institute class at what was then Utah Valley Community College, where the institute instructor knew a little bit of Hebrew, and I was just enthralled with this magical language that would enhance my understanding of the scriptures, and I decided I must learn this language. So I then began taking courses in biblical Hebrew at Brigham Young University, and uh, that opened the door for learning more ancient Near Eastern languages that would enhance my understanding of the cultural background of the Bible, and opened the door for graduate study at Brandeis. Uh, when I headed to Brandeis University, however, I was warned by a couple of professors that it would be a challenging experience for me spiritually uh, because of Brandeis's focus on historical criticism. Historical criticism is a term that is used to describe mainline traditional biblical scholarship, at least for the past 150 years or so. And for instance, when a student takes a class in Bible, 
Bible, a survey course at a university, courses, for instance, like I teach at the University of Utah, the method that is taught is historical criticism, typically, meaning that the Bible is analyzed in its original historical context and critically, not in the, not in the vein of critical analysis, meaning critiquing, but being objective, not reading the Bible as a Latter-day Saint or Mormon might, or a Catholic or any other particular modern lens, but trying to interpret it from the original author's perspective and how an early historic audience would have interpreted that message. And so as I uh, prepared myself for attending Brandeis University, I was kind of warned by a couple of professors that I studied with who were Latter-day Saints that this might be challenging for me and that I might even want to reconsider my acceptance into the program. And if I accepted that I should definitely do something other than Bible specifically, that I should do something on the sides, such as uh, comparative Semitics, Northwest Semitic studies, or uh, Assyriology, because it's oftentimes very difficult for Latter-day Saints, at least as it was explained to me, to pass through a program such as that and retain uh, their testimonies of the Restoration. And I was shocked by that. I'd never even thought in those terms before and quite dismissive, to be honest, Bill. I, I said, well, I will never lose my testimony, but I am interested in understanding how scholars interpret these sorts of issues. And it didn't take too long before I realized once I arrived at the university and began taking courses that if I was going to truly make sense of uh, the Bible in its historic context, that I would have to shift some of my paradigms that I traditionally held as a believer, and that uh, there was a reason why those professors, although I didn't agree with their perspective, still I appreciated where they were coming from and that it could be challenging sometimes to reconcile my religiosity with what I was learning academically. And so after years of going through this process and struggling and trying to understand how my spirituality, my testimony uh, could link in with critical theories, if at all, uh, you know, it was quite the journey where, you know, I've come to the point now where I feel very comfortable. I certainly don't have all the answers by any stretch, but I feel very comfortable interfacing with these two worlds. In the context of the introduction, I refer to myself as somewhat of an intellectual and spiritual amphibian. And I used that analogy because it's quite frequently how I feel because of my connection with scripture devotionally. And yet, the academic world that I interact with, where I try to interpret the text independent of my own religious assumptions as a Latter-day Saint. And so that's a contradiction. It's a, it's a, it's a strange idea for some people, but nonetheless, that was my training. That's what I do now. And so I was approached by uh, uh, Lloyd Erickson, who's the uh, acquisition editor at Coford uh, about a year ago and invited to write a book for Coford uh, introducing Latter-day Saints to this perspective and some of the scholarly theories that are used to understand how the Bible came about, specifically how the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament came about. And I told him I'd be happy to do that. But my in the back of my mind, I thought maybe 10, 15 years down the road, I recently completed the dissertation. My family was still recovering from that challenging ordeal, and I had a very heavy teaching load. And so it just didn't feel like the right time to do it. Besides that, I, to be quite frank and honest about it, I, I wondered if I could I could pull this off in a helpful way that would reach out and, and be a benefit to the Latter-day Saints who encounter historical criticism and try to make sense of it in light of their religiosity, uh, while at the same time, you know, being academic in the approach so that uh, and try to balance this in a press. I, uh, something that I was nervous about, whether or not I'd be able to pull off at this point in my career. Uh, but anyway, uh, to make a long story short, Lloyd continued to uh, press that this was something that he would like to see happen. And as I thought more about it, I felt, well, somewhat uniquely qualified because of this strange background that I've had devotionally and academically in Scripture to at least give it a shot and that it was something that I should try to do and felt confident that I could, despite the challenge, perhaps perhaps pull this off in a way that would be helpful. And so once I made that decision, Bill, it, the, the book really didn't take long to write because I had been thinking about these things for many years. And it just was almost a it was almost a healing process in a sense where I was able to just get my thoughts out on paper and express them in a way that I hoped would be beneficial and uh, to Latter-day Saint audience. 
that might be interested in these sorts of ideas. And again, specifically graduate students, uh, uh, LDS graduate students in very in programs where they're exposed to these sorts of ideas and facing kind of what I did, because which can lead to a uh, a crisis of faith, because it's it's definitely it shakes your world when you start to learn ideas that are problematic in terms of reconciling intellectually what you're learning, what you're seeing in terms of the textual development, and what you've traditionally always assumed, perhaps, as a religious individual, specifically as a Mormon reading the Bible. Awesome. Uh, how long did it take you to write the book? I know you said it, it didn't take long at all. What uh, what kind of time frame did you get to get that totally uh, written out in? I, I believe it took... It took less than a year to put it out, which may not, which may sound like a long time, but for, you know, this is, the book is written for a general audience without question. I, it was very important to me to write to a general audience. And so I uh, elicited the help of my brother, uh, Daniel Bakavoy, who has a master's degree in philosophy and who's a prosecuting attorney in the state of Utah and a very gifted writer. And I, I turned to him and said, okay, as I write each of these chapters, will you look at it and make sure that I'm not using too many academic jargons and that it can reach out to a general audience? And he was very helpful in editing uh, kind of my, my thoughts. And so it came together pretty quickly in terms of an academic book written for a general audience. You talked about going through your educational process and how you had to shift paradigms. And you talk about how for many that can be kind of the moment where they hit a faith crisis. And, and, you know, you and I both understand very well that when one encounters new information that doesn't match with that current uh, framework that they've, they've built or established because of what they've either done on their own uh, through study or by what the church has taught them, uh, that shift can be quite traumatic. How did you handle that paradigm shift personally? Was it was it a hard time, or did it kind of come very naturally to you? Well, to be honest, Bill, there were some challenging moments uh, in terms of my graduate study. That that's certainly true, I, and I wouldn't want to sugarcoat some of those those difficulties that I went through. But I actually dealt with this at a much earlier age. Just really a few months right after my mission, I, meaning this, meaning trying to make sense of what I was learning and realizing that I was going to have to shift some of my paradigms from what they once were in terms of my belief as a Latter-day Saint. Uh, I was just, I, w- I went on my mission and, and, and I was so in love with church history and the scriptures that I remember, despite being so exhausted and tired, uh, in the work, I would do everything I could to get up uh, an extra hour early to open up books like Doctrines of Salvation, uh, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, James E. Talmadge's The Great Apostasy, you know, some of the classics in, in Mormon literature that are illegal, technically, for a missionary to read. But I, I felt justified in, in bending the rule a little bit as long as I was doing it on my own time and getting up at an earlier hour. And so I just couldn't wait to get home from my mission and have all the time in the world to devote to this sort of study. And as when I came home, I spent I spent hour after hour in special collections at Brigham Young University and poured through the Journal of Discourses. And back in the day, this was back in the card catalog day, where I stumbled across this reference to a McConkie letter addressed to Eugene England on the Adam God Doctrine that was up in special collections. And I thought, okay, I must read this. And I read it, and it's the famous letter where Elder McConkie acknowledged that Brigham Young did, in fact, teach this Adam-God doctrine and uh, had lots of things written all over the letter. Do not copy, do not copy. And to me, that really, Bill, just a few months after my mission, rocked my world. I think that right there was the most difficult thing that I ever had to deal with in terms of my faith journey as a Latter-day Saint. Because it was at that point that I realized that... uh, well, that uh, not everything that uh, a prophet or an apostle taught might necessarily be doctrinally and historically correct. And people that I had long revered and looked towards as speaking the mind, will, and thoughts of deity himself, uh, that there it would be a lot more complicated than that. And it took quite a bit of time for me to process through that idea and come to terms with that. But once I did, you know, at, at age, you know, by age 
22, I was pretty well prepared to in, to to address a lot of the, the challenges that came up in in my graduate study specifically. And that's not to say that I didn't learn new things that um, were very hard for me to try and process. That was, I, I did, but I feel like because of that experience right after my mission, I was well prepared to try and um, try and make sense of some of these issues. Yeah, you know, you you bring up the Adam God thing with Elder McConkie, and and I specifically, as you were talking about that, I just a memory came to mind, and as I was thinking about how we sometimes pose the answer to that question. So when early on, when people ask about Brigham Young having taught that, I was given simple answers as an oh, we're misunderstanding the Journal of Discourses, or we're misinterpreting the words of Brigham Young. And I remember specifically when I'd also come across that same information from Elder McConkie, where he acknowledged that it was taught, it was it was one of those moments for me too, David, where I had to make a paradigm shift and kind of say, okay, some of the answers people give me for why things are the way they are, once I become more informed and study the issues deeper, some of those things simply don't don't work. And I want to kind of connect that to some of the thoughts you share in the book. And, and the first one is kind of an overarching issue, which is what is scripture? And maybe starting off with what scripture is not. And maybe I can pose the assumption that many of us as Latter-day Saints make and then maybe give you the floor to kind of share how you you would change that paradigm or help us reconcile that once we become informed and things don't fit as well. But but the assumption is this. Heavenly Father, as, as uh, our Father in Heaven, He speaks to His children. He does so through prophets. And we know from Amos 3.7, we always use this scripture all the time in the church, that the Lord shall do nothing except he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And so in my mind, as an early, as a younger Latter-day Saint, uh, early in my time in the church, and, and I'm a convert uh, to the faith, in in that short time after my conversion, my understanding of what a prophet was, I just pictured in my mind Isaiah sitting there. And I think we have one of these artistic drawings that kind of shows this, but Isaiah is sitting in a chair and he's, and he's writing out scripture because Heavenly Father, in a sense, is whispering these ideas and words into his ear and, and Isaiah is writing down, as you put it, the mind and will and thoughts of our Father in Heaven. And so when we look at the books of, uh, the, the first books in the Bible, the books of Moses, uh, and we look at even the books that come after that, Oftentimes, as Latter-day Saint, we just picture these men writing down the thoughts of God, and then now these writings go from generation to generation, and, and all of a sudden we're so lucky we've got them in our hands. And it seems like an oversimplification, but maybe you can help us kind of step away from that for a moment and recognize the complexity of, of what Scripture is and what it isn't. When I address this issue, I like to use Doctrine and Covenants section 1, and specifically uh, verse 24. In fact, that's a verse that I cite at least two or three times in the book to try and explain this idea of how Scripture comes together, specifically how revelation is given uh, from the Lord's perspective. We we see in Doctrine and Covenants section 1 the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, the statement, uh, verse 24, I am God, I have spoken it, these commandments. And when the text uses this word commandments, it's in reference to the revelation in the Book of Commands, so we can conceptually insert the word revelation for that term. So these revelations are of me, and were given unto my servants in their weakness, after the manner of their language, that they might come to understanding. And what I take from that personally, Bill, is that uh, when divinity speaks to humans, that it is within the context of our culture, our language, and therefore God seldom, I don't want to say he never, because I don't want to put limitations on on deity, but uh, it seems not only as we analyze history historically, critically, uh, but as we look at scripture itself, it seems that God seldom transcends the boundaries of human culture, but speaks to people in their tradition so that they might come to an understanding. And we can take that and directly apply that, as I do in the book, to the development of the Bible. Specifically, the text explores the first five books of the Bible, as you said, the traditional books of Moses. And look for ways that the authors of those texts, because 
because although tradition holds that Moses is the prophetic voice or prophetic word behind the development of those sources, biblical scholars have come to a different conclusion. For the past 150 years or so, there's been an academic consensus that there are multiple authorial voices, different documentary sources that have been brought together in the creation of that material, and that that material reflects Mesopotamian sources, traditions from ancient Babylonian legal collections like the laws of Hammurabi to uh, Mesopotamian creation stories like that that is found in the story Anuma Elish, which talks about the rise of Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, his rise to supremacy in the pantheon. These are sources that the biblical authors had access to and that they were interacting with in their own efforts to express their relationship to divinity, how they connect with God, and how, and from their perspective, God relates to humankind, and specifically his chosen family, Israel. So, scripture very much, as I see it, is is messy, and I use that term. And we can use that not only in terms of its development in the Hebrew Bible, but in the text itself that I produced, I I wanted to show Latter-day Saints that this messiness that we have of different authorial voices being brought together to create this revelatory whole from a believer's perspective, it parallels what we see described happening in terms of the Book of Mormon itself, with various authorial voices that are identified as narrators and then who present their own stories and the story of their people, material that is then subsequently edited by Mormon and put together, sometimes covering the same events, perhaps, but from different perspectives. That Book of Mormon provides a nice analogy for what scholars believe happens in terms of the development of Scripture for the, for the Bible's first five books. And therefore, we can also use an analogy, and I do this in the book as well, with the Prophet Joseph Smith's revelations. Various revelations that we have in the Doctrine and Covenants we now know through historical critical analysis and through the information that is coming to light through the Joseph Smith Papers Project were amalgamated sources. Doctrine and Covenants section uh, 88, for instance, is one such text, as is perhaps Doctrine and Covenants section 132. And there's been analysis even on uh, Doctrine and Covenant section 89, the word of wisdom, that these are separate revelations that the prophet Joseph Smith received that he then reworked and edited to read as one uh, one chronological whole. Well, this process that we see happening then in the Doctrine and Covenants and that is depicted in the Book of Mormon parallels what academic scholars believe happens in terms of the development of the Bible's first five books, that there are different individuals working within their language and in their culture, trying to make sense of divinity and their history, drawing upon ancient Near Eastern traditions, as I mentioned, drawing upon, no doubt, early Israelite oral traditions, bringing this information in together and editing it, working with it to create some sort of text that they hope will inspire their audiences to access the divine world. And in this process, I use the analogy in my own book of the prophet Joseph Smith's understanding of creation. We'll recall that uh, Joseph Smith rejects the traditional Judeo-Christian construct known as creation ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing. He tells us that there simply was no such thing, that instead of creating out of nothing, out of a vacuum, that instead God took pre-existent materials, matter unorganized, and gave it structure. And I like to use that as analogy, therefore, in the development of Scripture, for that's precisely what we see happening, is that it is a reflection of how Joseph views divine creation itself. So it's a process whereby, for a belief, from a believer's perspective, and I am very much a believer in, in the text, uh, Scripture, whether we're talking the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, or our focus here on the Bible, it's a process of bringing this together, this, these various sources, traditions, together, bringing them, working with them, and bringing chaos and disorder into something that can be used to help inspire and develop uh, spirituality in humankind. That's that's great. Now, I want to I want to throw maybe a problem out and then maybe you can address how you personally reconcile this. So what I'm going to have people say to me is that if we take scripture and we take it and change it in our minds in the way that we understand it, in the sense of now, rather than having Moses receiving the mind and will of God and writing it down on on paper 
and now it's in our hands as it's been passed down from generation to generation. And, and now we change it to this idea that there are possibly multiple authors who are simply trying to to share the divine in the way that they understand it with us. And some of these things get mixed into some of these stories. Not that the story isn't based on some historical reality, but that there are other things involved in the story as well that are not maybe necessarily directly connected to Moses in the experiences that he's having. People are going to say that we're essentially watering down scripture to the point where it means nothing. But as I very well know, and I'm hoping you can speak to, after we do this, if our foundation is still solid spiritually, scripture can still be a sacred text. And and maybe if you can just speak for a moment on how you still see it as such. That's a great question, Bill. And one that, of as you well know, there really is no easy answer for. And all I can share is, is as, as you've set me up to do, is, is how it works for me. An analogy that I like to provide in terms of reading the text this way and trying to understand it from this perspective or angle and how it can be very helpful is uh, going to Genesis chapter 1 uh, itself, which has uh, this beautiful story of creation that we oftentimes try to take very literally and scientifically. And the problem with that is that that is a perspective, scientific perspective, that is completely foreign to the original author's intent and certainly his worldview. And it can be disconcerting, therefore, to some individuals to stop and think, well, if it's not a scientific reality, what value does a text like Genesis 1 have in terms of my understanding of divinity? It seems like, is he just making it up or whatnot? And I think a more sophisticated way of approaching the text than for, from a believer's perspective is to recognize that this is an author who lives in a cultural context where there is a different, an entirely different worldview. And we can illustrate this, and he's, and this author therefore is trying to present his understanding of the biblical God whom he reveres in this context that the author lives in. And this happens in several ways. One, the creation story in Genesis 1 is actually organized or structured into a six-day creative process, as our listeners will well know. But what perhaps many overlook is the fact that it is very systematic or highly structured in its development, so that so that day one links with day four, day two links with day with day five, and day three links with day six. So on day one, for instance, we read that God created the lights. He divided the light from the darkness. And then mathematically, three days later, on day four, he will create the objects that pertain to that sphere, the sun, the moon, the stars. Day two, we read that he divides the waters from up above and the waters below through this plastic dome that the King James refers to as a firmament. Think of it as a clear plastic dome that keeps those waters that are so blue and that sometimes rain down upon us as human beings from falling down and flooding the earth. But we also know from this ancient perspective that there's water underneath the earth because what happens when a person digs a hole? We get deep enough and water starts to seep up through that hole. So there must be water on this flat surface upon which the earth resides. So that's why then on day five, three days after two, God will create the birds, referred to as fowl in the King James text, and the fish, in other words, the individuals, the entities that pertain to the sphere that is created on day two. Then on day three, he creates the land, and it is on day six that God creates the things that pertain to that sphere, the plants, the animals, the humans. And so we look at that and recognize that, well, some who are over literal and try to think of it as an accurate portrayal of how every event in creation actually transpired will look at that and try to read in scientific observations or evolution, perhaps to some extent. That's certainly not what the text is about. Instead, this author is trying to present a message in his world, in his environment. And that message is, is that there is a God who has a plan, who has complete control to the point that every Everything has been worked out quite logically and systematically, and therefore, this God who does this is a deity in whom we can put our faith, our trust, our confidence. And so, recognizing as a critical reader that this seems to be the message that the author wishes to uh, present to his audience, 
I would take the position that this is a profound religious idea that can be very inspiring in terms of my own relationship to divinity as I seek to work out how I as a human being connect with this God who is depicted in this text. And for those who've had spiritual encounters with the source, this is an easy paradigm to shift into and make because one could take the perspective that God has had a direct hand in the overall development of these individual, sometimes contradictory sources that are used to produce the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and so forth. And that this process in which God inspired and worked with these authors was one where he was able to speak to them in their language and understanding so that they might develop some profound views regarding divinity. And if I read the text critically from this perspective as a believer, then I'm able to learn new insights about divinity, things that are perhaps beyond my own assumptions, whether I'm a Latter-day Saint or a Catholic or a Baptist or a Jewish reader of any sort, I'm able to allow this reader who lived in an entirely different world, an entirely different historical context, and therefore understood divinity differently than I do, teach me his views. And as a critical reader, sometimes I won't agree with this. There are many ideas within the Bible that uh, not only did the prophet Joseph Smith himself state that did not accord with the revelations of the Holy Ghost as manifest to him, but even from our perspective as, as, as modern men and women, we will look at some of these ideas, especially in the Old Testament, and together with the inspired ideas regarding God, if we're reading carefully and critically, we will no doubt find ideas that we find immoral, things that we disagree and that do not reflect our views about divinity, and therefore reading the text from this perspective as scripture, reading it critically, I would argue then, allows a person to access divinity even when, and perhaps especially when, the ideas found within the text do not accord with our own assumptions regarding the divine world. I like that, and it puts maybe a little different spin on Nephi's The Scripture of Like and the Scriptures Unto Yourself, in that rather than focusing on the, the, the historicity, I mean, not that, not that that isn't important, and I get, you know, the whole idea of examining those things, but sometimes just setting that aside and seeing how that Scripture applies to you. And, and the other thing too, when you talk about Looking at scriptures in this way, I know many Latter-day Saints and many Christians in general really struggle with reconciling the Old Testament God with the New Testament God. But if we'll let some of these literalistic interpretations kind of just be set aside for the moment, all of a sudden we can kind of wind our own way through the scriptures and find those things that bring us closer to Christ. And in a sense, those things that feel immoral or just don't seem right to us. Uh, as we lean on those spiritual inclinations, we can just, again, we can kind of set those aside. I mean, is that, is that kind of the take you have? Absolutely. I think, Bill, that was beautifully expressed. And uh, I'm going to actually put in a plug for another book that our listeners will no doubt be familiar with, but I've only recently encountered. I just returned from a visit uh, to Texas with the Miller Eccles Mormon Studies Group and was able to present in a couple of different venues there and get to know some wonderful people, including... Um, Adam Miller, who is uh, just producing some wonderful works, the most recent one through the Maxwell Institute entitled, entitled Letters to a Young Mormon. And uh, Adam gave me a copy of this book on a Friday night after I presented, and I was very grateful for the gracious gift. And I, I took it back and, and read a little bit Friday night and was hooked and finished the whole thing Saturday morning. It's a short read and was especially touched by Adam's section where he discusses scripture. And he uses the term translation kind of very similar to the way I explored it in my book. Uh, I talk about translation a lot because it's very important when we analyze historical criticism of the Pentateuch in light of our unique scripture as Latter-day Saints, the book of Moses, the book of Abraham, even the book of Mormon. And Joseph is a translator, but he's not a translator as we traditionally think of rendering from one language into another. Even he doesn't see the work all the time as translator in that vein. Instead, he seems to interpret the concept of translation as 
bringing something from one sphere to a higher, nobler location. That's why he'll use the term translation to describe men and women who are translated from earth into heaven. And I would argue then, by extension, what he does ultimately with the Bible is very much something similar. He takes the Bible and through his inspired translation, renders it to a higher spiritual plane. And that's really the way that I talk about it in detail in terms of my approach in authoring the Old Testament. Returning then to Adam's book, I, he uses translation in his chapter on scripture in a very similar way, and I was so deeply touched. And I just would like to share then just a couple of lines that really uh, were so helpful to me, especially in light of my own journey that I've provided a little bit of information regarding for our audience. But so, so in Adam's chapter on scripture, uh, he encourages a young Mormon reader to to translate the scriptures, meaning make them relevant and and spiritual and personal for his or her own life. And on page thirty four, he he writes these lines. And I actually, when on, I saw Adam again on. Uh, Let's see, I, I, he gave me the book on Friday night. I saw him again on Sunday night. He came to another presentation, and right when I saw him, I, I, I literally had to run up and just give him a big hug, which uh, he was gracious enough to receive, but I just, I, just, I just was so grateful for the whole book, but especially these lines, and I, I even read them out loud um, to him. And he writes on page 34, The more familiar you are with Israelite histories, Near Eastern archaeologies, and secular biblical scholarship, the richer your translation will be rendered. Don't be afraid for scripture and don't be afraid of these other books. Claim it all as your own. Doubtless, the world's best books have their flaws, but this just means that they too must be translated. You'll need to translate them so that they can contribute to your own translations. And then he adds, as long as these other books help you to translate repentance, then you're still doing it right. And I just thought that was so beautifully articulated, and I read it to him and told him how much I, it meant to me, and then I asked him to sign my book, and he signed the copy of it, and I just kind of threw it in my bag then and took it home and was so excited to share that chapter with my family as we sat down to read our scriptures that night, and, and I opened up Adam's Adam's book and, and realized that when he had signed it, he signed it, uh, he not only signed his name, but he wrote, For David, and then wrote, Translate, exclamation point. And uh, I was very touched by that idea that he shared, and it, it just meant so much to me, and I think is a, a good way of articulating what you and I both are saying here in this, in this conversation, Bill. Yeah, and I, and I want to ask you one more question about the Old Testament. That is beautiful. I interviewed Adam about a year ago regarding his, uh, his book, Rube Goldberg Machine. And, and so I had a wonderful chance to sit down with him and to talk with him and to get some of his thoughts on, on some of the ways in which he works through some of these kinds of things. And now a brief message from one of our sponsors. The sponsor is a regular listener to Mormon Discussion Podcast. He has written the book, 77 Days in September. It tells of a story of a man overcoming countless obstacles to reunite with his family after a terrorist attack disrupts the United States. 77 Days is based on a real threat, and while not LDS fiction, it is suitable for an LDS audience. It has sold over 75,000 copies, spent five weeks ranked in Amazon's Top 100, narrowly missed the New York Times bestseller list, and has over 1,800 reviews with 90% of reviewers rating at four or five stars. If you like to read books, you will love 77 Days in September. 77 Days in September is currently available as an ebook for just $3.99 from Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, and Smashwords. Please show your support for this sponsor of our program by purchasing his book, 77 Days in September. And now back to the second half of our episode of Mormon Discussion. The other thing I wanted to ask is, and maybe I can just share my own little story, I... Early on in the church, what I found to be highly valuable to me was that the church had answers for everything. If I wanted to know how old the earth was, I could go read a book and find that answer. If I wanted to know what the Lord said about evolution, there was a book out there and I could read the answer. If if I was willing to read lots of books, I could have answers on everything. And in many ways... I think most of us early on tend to see scripture this way, where we go into the scriptures and, and if Abraham's willing to sacrifice his son, then by golly, we all ought to be willing to make those kinds of sacrifices. And yet what happens is, at least in my case, as I, as I matured, as I got older, as I began to see the world around me, 
all of a sudden I wake up one day and I realize that sacrificing your son on an altar because because an angel tells you to no longer seems to make sense. In fact, I would venture to say that everybody who's done that over the last 50 years has been considered crazy and and has been put away for, for those types of uh, behaviors. And all of a sudden, that world that I used to live in doesn't fit anymore. And... What I've found as I've gone through time now that I, you know, I started off kind of waking up to this realization maybe five or six years ago. And now today where I'm at, David, is that I really enjoy the complexity and the nuance. I love taking things apart. I love getting multiple views from multiple leaders in the church and realizing that whereas 10 years ago, I thought there was one clear-cut answer on a topic. I now realize today that there are three or four variations of ways that I can approach the issue, and all of them are sanctioned by an LDS leader here or an LDS leader there. And that becomes a cherished way to deal with Scripture. But here's the struggle. I know Latter-day Saints who whose testimonies are founded on the idea that that the flood had to be global, founded on the idea that man's only been on the earth for several thousand years rather than more. And and when they're when they're met face to face with the complexity, they seem to struggle. Is is there a way in which, you know, if someone came to you and they're struggling with the Old Testament, the stories that are there, and this new way of kind of recognizing that scripture may not be exactly what you think you're reading on the pages, and someone comes to you and they're struggling over a global flood or evolution or the age of the earth or how to interpret. I just did an episode recently on the Garden of Eden and my own personal take, and, and again, I, I allow everybody to have their freedom, and I don't mean to go on rambling here, but I with the Garden of Eden, I see it as a as an analogy of us leaving the pre-mortal life and coming and falling not out of a garden, but out of the premortal life to this earth. And I totally take it in this figurative, symbolic way. But for others, when that kind of idea is posed or they begin to kind of encounter this variation, they struggle. What what would you say to somebody who's having a hard time with the transition from taking everything literally to trying to see the beauty and all the, the figurativeness or the nuance or at the very minimum, the messiness of it, as you put it? One of my favorite quotes on this very topic derives from the lectures on faith. It's specifically lecture 5, uh, verse 2, and it states that Jesus Christ was exposed to greater contradictions than any man, and yet remained true and faithful through that process. And I I have come to believe, as you have, Bill, that in interacting with the contradictions that are found in terms of different viewpoints, whether we're talking about the theological views and discrepancies that appear within the Bible itself, or even in terms of Latter-day prophets and different ideas that have been expressed historically in our own Latter-day Saint-specific tradition. Interacting with these contradictions is a very important part, I believe, of our spiritual development and growth. We quite frequently speak about the importance of self-reliance in the LDS Church, and yet I think most of the times, at least in the wards that I've been in, the focus on that that self-reliance has been on temporal preparation, right? Food storage and, 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 and money saved aside for a rainy day. And that's certainly important without question, but I think much more important is the very concept of spiritual self-reliance, where I'm able to use the statements of living prophets, seers, and revelators as a guide, where I'm able to work my way critically into the scriptures and experience the contradictions and then try to make sense of that in terms of my own relation to divinity. From my perspective, that that, that, that is essential to true spiritual growth. And... I therefore, you know, I dedicated the volume to, to my daughter, Kate, who's on a mission right now in Chile. And uh, in the introduction of the, uh, of the volume, I, I, I referred to the fact that I, I just, I miss her so much. It was one of the reasons I, we did this. She's our oldest daughter and our family dynamic has changed right when I began to write this book. And so it just made sense. But also I felt like she was very much representative of hope, who I hoped ultimately would be impacted by 
this type of book because as a you know especially this next generation that's coming up behind us they're going to have continued access to information beyond anything ever in the history of the world and so as they interact with information it's something in that we should not fear but will cause us to step back and question our assumptions and yet that questioning process i believe is central to spirituality and so in the context of the dedication and the line that I wrote to her, I, I referred to her as one who understands that uh, that spirituality is developed through faith, love, service, and critical thinking. And she very much is that sort of person and an inspiration to me because of it. But uh, yeah, I, I, I have come to the point where, at least now speaking personally, it, it's not just the fact that... Um, that it's not problematic, sorry for the double negative, but it's that it's not problematic for me as a believing Latter-day Saint to study challenging documents, whether it's biblical source criticism or some of the fascinating insights that have been offered by critical historians of Joseph Smith and the Restoration. Uh, it's not only that it is not problematic for me, for me, Bill, personally, that is inseparably linked with my developing spirituality because it forces me to question my assumptions and to try to make sense of the information as I put together my own relationship to divinity. And I recognize that that approach is very different, perhaps, than one that it was, that, that many have held to uh, for as Latter-day Saints for many years, where, as you said, and you articulated it very well, where perhaps the assumption is that we can go into the book of Genesis and really learn how creation took place step by step. But uh, we should be pursuers of truth. The Prophet Joseph Smith, in one of my favorite statements, uh, suggests this, that Mormonism is a philosophy that seeks to embrace all truth. Let it come from whatever source it may. In other words, as I take it, it if there are scientific observations that represent truth, we bring that in and make that part of Mormonism. If there are critical observations about the development of scriptures that scholars have worked through that make absolute sense and that the consensus is held for 150 years, they may or may not be right, but I certainly need to take that in consideration as I try to work out my own understanding of how I connect with the text, or perhaps even don't connect with the text as a religious person. And from my perspective, Bill, and I would share with that individual that uh, this may be difficult to transition into this perspective, but it is very much one that, at least for me personally, defines who I am as an individual and, and my relationship to Scripture and to, to divinity as well. That's great. I know that often it feels like it's impossible to change a paradigm, and instead the information simply has to change or we have to just entrench on where we're at. But it's really through those paradigm shifts, it's really by allowing ourselves to to take a second look at things and say, you know what, why do I feel a need to hold on to this or that? And perhaps re-examine things and, and rebuild things in a way that, that fits better for each of us individually. And it is an individual thing. I'm sure that if you and I got into various doctrines and ideas, that you and I would disagree on lots of those. But it, there's beauty in that. And there's and in that flexibility, that ability to take an issue and make it your own Rather than having to rely on whatever interpretation somebody outside of you is given, once it becomes yours, I mean, it, it, there's so, so much power in that, and there's a, such a spiritual. And I know I'm, I'm probably sounding to half the listeners like I'm not making sense. I hope that I am. When you make the scriptures personal and to yourself, as like I said, as Nephi said, to liken the scripture unto yourself, there is just so much inherent power there. I just know that when I go into the scriptures now, it is a, it's a, um, it's an experience. That I didn't never, I, that I didn't have prior to this kind of awakening. And each time kind of delving into them, there's new opportunities to learn and to take new things away from it. Anyway, I know I'm going on and on, but I, I hope people hear as you're speaking that if one encounters conflict and a struggle and one is feeling like their faith is being diminished, perhaps rather than trying to change the facts they're encountering, one ought to look at maybe re redesigning the paradigm in which they fit those facts. And I think often, as you kind of hint at, there's plenty of room for faith when we do that. I, I want to ask you a question about the New Testament as well. I know that your book focuses on the Old Testament, but I, I can't let you get away without at least at least maybe speaking to this. We've been talking here about the Old Testament, which is a long ways away, way in the past. And even though the New Testament certainly is not, you know, a couple of years old, it, it's certainly much closer to us 
in the way that you framed the Old Testament, are we to look at the New Testament in the same way, or or do we have the ability to see the New Testament as coming from those people whose names are on those documents, at least the names that we've got today, or is it also just as messy as the Old Testament is? And uh, yes, it's just as messy without question. And uh, that's the beauty of it. And I personally love that messiness. I don't, it doesn't matter if it's if we're talking the Old Testament or the New Testament or the Book of Mormon. I find that idea of messiness, to use that term, or complexity, contradictions, fascinating and wonderful to explore. I'm actually in the next year going to teach a course on the historical figure of Jesus in a first century Jewish context at the University of Utah. And I love historical criticism. I do. Uh, intellectually, spiritually, I just, the idea of, of multiple authors with contradictory theological views and seeing the evolution of Christianity emerge in those various documents is an exciting journey. It's wonderful. And it's something that I believe that we as Latter-day Saints should be familiar with. I, I, I really do, which is why I wrote the book, because I think it does inform our understanding of divinity as we try to work our way into these scriptural sources and understand the contradictions that exist between them and the contradictions that exist between those sources and our own beliefs and traditions. And that's certainly, as you know, Bill, very much a part of the New Testament. And it's 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 a lot of fun. It really is. I I, I think it's I, I hate to use. Well, I don't hate to use. I'll be honest. I use the word fun because it to me, historical criticism of the Bible, whether Old Testament or New Testament, is an exciting intellectual and spiritual journey without question. Yeah, it's been fascinating over the last maybe six months looking at some of this historical criticism of the New Testament. And, and one of the neat things, maybe the listeners who are, are listening to this uh, podcast for the first time and kind of wanting to know what some of these issues are, and, and I'll just throw them out there. We don't need to necessarily discuss them today. I know they're discussed in other places. But a story that we use all the time in the New Testament, which is the woman taken in adultery and, and her having been being brought to the Savior and him, of course, kneeling down and drawing in the dirt and then saying he was uh, not sinned, cast the first stone. What we don't realize is that this story, if I'm not mistaken, comes long, long after the life of Christ and is not part of the original document. Not that it happened or didn't happen, but that it's not part of the original document. And so part of the historical criticism then would be, is this an original story to Jesus or is somebody later on adding it? Am I fair in, in saying that? Yes, and there are all sorts of wonderful issues like that to explore. Another one is the Bethlehem verse, uh, birth of Christ. Uh, cr historical critical analysis would lead us to a conclusion that the historical figure of Jesus is probably not born in Bethlehem, that he's probably born uh, in Nazareth. And there are lots of reasons for this, not only as we analyze uh, texts like Matthew and Luke critically, but as we in individually, but as we line them up and compare them, we're able to start to see a picture of the historical Jesus emerge that is perhaps a little bit different than we might have assumed when we take this sort of critical approach. And, and it's an exciting and fascinating idea and journey. And as I teach this to university students who come from a variety of different backgrounds, some are LDS, some are non-LDS and, and form, you know, Jewish or Christian of one denomination or another, I'll quite frequently tell them, look, we're not asking that you buy into all of these ideas and theories, but I believe that as a religious person, it's, it does you well to understand how scholars interpret the history of these ideas and the assumptions that you hold. And then do with it what you want to. No one's forcing you to buy into something like the documentary hypothesis, which is the theory that is explored in detail in my book, Author in the Old Testament, or one of the specific, specific views that we've talked about in terms of historical critical analysis of the New Testament. But uh, it's, it's, it's good to understand these ideas and to, to try and bump up against them and use those to inform our faith. You say, you know, the story of Jesus being born in Bethlehem may not be the case that he may have been born in Nazareth, but maybe as a side note, he would still be born in the land of Jerusalem, correct? Yeah, yeah, which would help, yeah, be helpful to the Book of Mormon's cause, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. a little joke there. Yeah. I, uh... I guess maybe just this thought, I don't know if you were on this podcast or not, but I know Dan Witherspoon, 
uh, for Mormon Matters, did a podcast on the historical Jesus, and you were talking a little bit about that. And maybe just to make a note for the listeners, because you point this out, you don't have to buy into all of these ideas in studies and ways of looking at this historical context. But he made a, a kind of a, a neat little comment, or somebody on that panel made a neat comment about the way in which we try to get at who Jesus was. And, and we realize that there's the Jesus of faith. It's it's how each of us within our religion, maybe even individually, see Jesus uh, as the Savior and Messiah and how we reckon that. We also have the historical Jesus, which is is not necessarily to say the authentic, real, actual Jesus, but rather what the historical documents say about him. And then we have the real Jesus, which none of us can ever really get at because there's just no you know, camera uh, footage of him. And even if we had that, it would have to be on 24-7 for us to know exactly who he was. And so there's these three kind of different directions we're all trying to hit uh, at, at the Savior uh, to try and get who he is. Uh, but as you point out, there's really no perfect way to do that. And each of us should be free within our research and study, our pondering and praying, and our reading of sacred scripture, absolutely, to to arrive at uh, how we understand the Savior. And and as you point out, too, we shouldn't toss out the words of modern prophets uh, as we do that, that it should be a serious search. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not misquoting you, right? You believe that we should attack it kind of that way? Abs- no, absolutely I do. Yeah, I know very much believe that. I, whether we're talking modern prophecy or or ancient prophetic traditions, yeah, that's. I believe that's the challenge that we face as religious men and women, no matter whether we're LDS or general Christian or Jewish or any other faith group. Uh, I, but specifically, uh, another great quote that I provided in, in my book that I love in terms of what we're discussing right now is from John Taylor, who makes this observation, quote, We are open to truth of every kind, no matter whence it comes, where it originates, or who believes in it. A man in search of the truth has no particular system to sustain, no particular dogma to defend or theory to uphold. End of quote. What a powerful, yeah, powerful, beautiful way of looking at Mormonism as a religion that does not have a particular dogma, but instead looks to find, looks to understand all that God continues to unfold, disclose, or reveal, both to the institution and to us as individuals. So David, talking about the Old Testament and talking about the New Testament and how we see these is scripture, but also recognizing they're messy. What can we take away from that that we can maybe apply to the Book of Mormon, or is the Book of Mormon uh, another kind of another kind of thing that really can't be measured by these same standards? Excellent, Bill. The Book of Mormon teaches us how to read scripture. Time and time again, the authors invite us to take a critical approach to what they are presenting. They tell us that uh, they are prone to mistake, that they have a weakness in writing. Uh, we'll have occasions even where the prophets themselves in the Book of Mormon, Alma, for instance, will will tell us that uh, he doesn't, he's, this is his best guess on a theological issue. Lehi talks about the idea of Satan and he says, from the things I've read, I must needs suppose and the title page itself allows for the possibility of human error within scripture and so we though i love what you brought up earlier bill i think many of us as latter day saints come to scripture from the perspective that we can totally trust everything that it says on every specific topic to be the mind will thoughts and reality of God, the Book of Mormon itself is telling us that that's not necessarily the case. That although Christ puts a divine stamp of approval upon the, wor- the words of the Book of Mormon, they still have weakness, they still have error, they still have human qualities. So that's not only true for the Book of Mormon, but that is true, which is the Book of Books, as Parley P. Pratt defined, and is a book that the Prophet Joseph Smith tells us that we can draw near to God by abiding by its precepts more so than any other book, and there Therefore, if that is true for the Book of Mormon, that certainly is true for every other scriptural source, including the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament and the New Testament. Excellent. We're speaking today with uh, David Bakavoy, author of Authoring the Old Testament. I want to finish off, David, with one last question, and then I want to come back to the book for just a second. The, the Book of Abraham is an issue that has plagued many Latter-day Saints. We grow up kind of in the church just hearing barely on a surface level what that document is purported to be. And and then if any of us are digging deeper, we realize that there are lots of challenges 
and I think fair challenges to that to that translation process to the Egyptian papyri. And I know that you've you've spoken at length about ways in which you make this fit and still come out on the other side with it being sacred scripture and with Joseph absolutely being a prophet in giving us this scripture. And I know in many ways that uh, that you've gotten some some negative feedback. Uh, for the way in which you've approached it. But I just want to say at the end of this podcast, just publicly, thank you. Having read some of the things that you've written on uh, on the book of Abraham, I simply want you to know for those, for some of us anyway, who are encountering this issue and we're struggling, some of the thoughts that you've had, some of the ideas that you've shared, some of the ways in which you've encountered the book of Abraham and, like I said, come out the other side fully believing have been a breath of fresh air to me and allowed uh, people like me and, and I'm sure others, I'm sure countless others, uh, to continue to hold on to this book as sacred scripture. And so I just want to publicly say thank you. Bill, that's very kind of you. I certainly don't present, pretend to have all the answers on any of these issues, certainly not on something as complex as the Book of Abraham and how it relates to us as Latter-day Saints historically and theologically. But uh, it, I do have some ideas, at least, that I hold now. We'll see where my views end up uh, 10 years from now. I'm sure I'll be changing some ideas you know, along the line as I try to seek for further light and knowledge. But um, your comments mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. I, that's been my hope is that, uh, that yeah, that I could at least share some possibilities that a faithful Latter-day Saint might consider, things, you know, that, that work for me and that help me connect with the text. As I've stated publicly on many occasions, uh, I believe the book of Abraham is one of the most beautiful books of scripture that has ever been produced. Its theology speaks to my soul, whether we're talking about divine counsels of deities or the pre-mortal human existence. I absolutely believe that it's an inspired document that uh, that uh, our Father in Heaven has had a hand in, in, its, in producing. And yet still, as you're hinting at, the evidence clearly works against the idea that Abraham himself could have been produced that document. And right. I deal with that in my in my book specifically, and I hope to present it in a way that, um, you know, not that people will necessarily be convinced by my perspective, but at least, especially those that encounter the evidence and start to struggle, maybe can look at it and say, well, there are some ways that I can reconcile that critical information with my spiritual connections with the text. Because there are many of us uh, that are that are in that camp, Bill, not only just you and I, but uh, many others. I, I appreciate it. Um, I'm not going to speak for anyone, but I really appreciated Brian Hoglid's explanation who's of the Book of Abraham in Dan's podcast on it recently. And I don't know that there's anyone who's delved into the history of that document in recent years as, with as great in, as intensity as Brian has. And here's one who understands all of the issues and who has a fervent testimony of its of the inspiration behind the document. So there are lots Beautiful. of us, but 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 thank you, Bill. That your 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 thoughts expressed in this mean a lot to me personally. Thank you. Yeah, excellent. I will link that uh, that podcast episode that Dan Witherspoon did for Mormon Matters, where you guys talked about the Book of Abraham. Abraham. I thought it was a wonderfully done episode, and I think it was a great kind of crash course uh, for anybody who struggled with the issue to kind of open their eyes and say, "There's a little more going on here than what we think." And I also uh, maybe just kind of a finishing comment on the Book of Abraham had Terrell. Givens and Richard Bushman on maybe six, eight months ago on the podcast on separate occasions. And both of them out of the blue made the point that often we focus so much energy on how we got the book of Abraham. And then we never take a look at what it is we actually ended up with. And, and as you're pointing out, I mean, yes, the, the story of how we got it is a lot more complex than what we were told in the three hour block. But yet, if we deal with the book itself, the book of Abraham and, and what is written therein, uh, again, can certainly absolutely see that as sacred scripture. So again, thank you. I, uh, I want to finish, I guess, with just a really simple question, hopefully the easiest question of the podcast, which is where can people find your book? 
Well, the book right now is available in a few bookstores in in the state of Utah. Uh, not yet available in Desert Book or Siegel. I don't know if 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 it ever will be. We'll we'll see. I know the publishers are hoping that that's the case. But really, the easiest way to access it right now is online through Amazon or right directly through the publisher Coford Books, and that's probably the best way because I really like what Coford is has done in recent years for Mormon studies. I it's why I agreed. To to write the book and support their endeavor. Uh, really, just some of the most important works in our field have come out through that press, and I'm just really grateful for everything that they're doing. And 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 so it's you know they're be almost operating. Well, it's, it's very difficult to to operate in such a narrow field, and so any support that Coford can receive by ordering directly from them is very helpful. Sure. I uh, just maybe kind of join with you putting a plug in for for Greg Coford books. I've talked to Greg. I've talked to Lloyd Erickson uh, several times. And again, looking at their website and the books that they offer, yours and many others, just a wonderful bookstore, uh, a wonderful uh, a publisher in order to to get maybe some of the rundown on some of these complex issues and but to to really see them in a kind of upfront in a deep way that doesn't kind of pull any punches. Uh, but rather puts it all out there for each of us to kind of figure out what's really going on behind the scenes with some of these things. And I think your book does that extraordinarily well. I hope that the listeners will take a chance. If, if you'd like to know more about the Old Testament, if you'd like to know more about what is Scripture and, and what are prophets and how do we get the things that we, we have within uh, our Scriptures, uh, the, your book, David, is just incredible, and I hope my listeners will check it out. I will put links to where these books can be found. And uh, again, uh, thank you so much, David, for being on the podcast tonight. It's my pleasure, Bill. I'm very grateful for your time and the interview, and thank you so much. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy Never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming I raise my Ebenezer Here by thy great help I've come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God to rescue me from danger Interposed his precious blood Oh, that day when freed from sinning I shall see thy lovely face Clothed then in blood-washed linen How I'll sing thy sovereign grace Come, my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransom soul away Send thine angels now to carry Me to realms of endless day To grace, how great a debtor Daily I am constrained to be Let thy goodness, like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave the God I love Here's my heart, 
Oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above.